Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All is a podcast from the Center for Health Equity Transformation, gathering voices in research and communities around Chicago. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all. Thank you for joining us on Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All. We, like many of our fellow Chicagoans, are staying home and practicing social distancing to flatten the curve. We are here to present a mini-series, COVID-19, in our Chicago communities. Each mini-episode will focus on a different community in Chicago to find out how they are coping with these difficult times. This episode features our co-host, Araceli, interviewing Renee Flores. She's a nurse at the Heinz Veteran Affairs. She works in the home telehealth program where she enrolls patients with chronic diseases such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and HIV to improve their self-management of their disease in addition to decreased days in bed and ER visit. Thank you and welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Hi, Renee. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. So I'll just jump in. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what your position and department is that you work in? Sure. In the um, I'm a registered nurse at BSN, and um, what I do, I've been a nurse for oh, about 25 years, a little bit more actually, actually 27, 28 years. And what I do is I work with patients in the comfort of their home. We do everything with a telehealth, which means that it's all done virtually um, in the sense that they have equipment in their homes that allows them to measure important data for us, like blood pressures, weights, um, heart rates, blood sugars, temperatures, pulse ox, and that information is sent to us via different types of technology. They can either have a piece of equipment in their room, in their home that's metered. Everything is attached to it, so it's all immediate, um, real time-stamped information. Or they can call it in, they can use a computer, they can use an app. And what that data does <clears throat> is it's sent to us, and we're able to look at it and see if there's any issues going on. So briefly, I'll give you a little example. If I have a patient who's in my program and we have multiple comorbidities um, that we deal with, to name a few, heart failure is a major one because with heart failure, the highest um, incidence of re-hospitalization is shortly after they get out of the hospital with a heart failure exacerbation. So they go home and they have this piece of equipment and every day they have a specific way to get up put their weights in, their blood pressures, whatever it is we're asking, and they also get tidbits of education that help support them to learn how to self-manage their disease, and this is a key aspect of what we do. By teaching them how to learn how to identify symptoms, learn fluid restrictions, sodium restrictions, they're able to better self-manage their disease, and this prevents them from having um, unnecessary hospital visits to the ER, um, hospitalizations, unnecessary visits to the doctor because we also help case manage them in terms of making sure they have their medications or any other resources, social work, mental health, whatever it is we may find that they need through the relationship that we gain with them in their program. Wow, that's very impressive. Can you describe um, if you if you see any uh, COVID-19 patients or if not, any change that you're seeing in the populations that you do serve? Well, 
Definitely, there is an increase in a, a increase in patients who are being confirmed and patients who are being suspected. And so, because of that, we now just added a new we call it a DMP, which is a disease management program. So, like I was saying, they may be in for heart failure or diabetes, but now it's specifically for respiratory disease, uh, respiratory. Inf- respiratory infectious disease. We call it RID. And so what we're doing is we have specific questions that these patients are going to be in the program for and they're monitoring their temperature because what's happening is they're being exposed or they're exhibiting the specific symptoms, but they may not necessarily meet the criteria to be tested. Um, And so they're instructed to be at home and to be self-monitoring and do the social distancing and the whole, everything that you're hearing on TV. And so what we're doing is we're enrolling these patients in these programs and we're talking to them every day and assessing if there's any change. Um, And then if there are, we have a specific protocol that we do. And then we make sure that they just come to the hospital and get the resources that they need. Yes, I'm sure that's some of this technology already set in place is very helpful, especially at a time like this, especially to prevent patients that don't need to be in the hospital from exposing themselves or exposing others by um, going into these um, medical and clinical settings. What would you say is something that you're seeing right now that maybe the general public we don't see? I'll say that I think that some of the things that I am seeing is that, you know, we get a lot of information day to day and the Veterans Affair and the federal government are very good about managing situations like this. So our staff in particular have specific entrances. We are taking our temperature walking in. We're given a sticker that approves us to walk in the building. We're being isolated in areas so that we don't have to, especially non-essential employees who don't need to be on the floors or with patients. And so we're seeing that, which is good. But then you're hearing things in the background of what's really happening with some patients that you don't necessarily hear on the news. And an example could be You could have a patient walk into the ER and he's talking and he's walking and he looks fine and you could be taking a pulse ox on him, which is checking the amount of oxygen in his blood and he could be at 78 or 80 and in six hours he'll be on a ventilator. So these patients are crashing very quickly and especially our elderly population and the outcomes are not always the best. And so in saying that, um, my point is that there still is a lot that is not necessarily told to the public. I think, unfortunately, our news tends to put out there what they feel are important. And there's a lot of good information, but there's a lot of things that are missed. And I think people might say, oh, I think I'll be fine one more day and one more day. And being fine that one more day could be you know, a very detrimental change in how you could have been treated. Can you like tell us a little bit if you had the ability um, to spotlight a few more like information that you think would be helpful for the public to know that they currently don't know, like you're, like you're saying people are waiting longer. What, what information would that be? Well, I think, you know, there's, it's important for patients to pay attention to what the validated associations like the Center for Disease Control and the World um, Organization for Health. Those organizations are the, the people that you should really listen to. Plus, I believe very well and strongly that our government in our local state are giving us actual and factual information. Um, so if you do have exposure or if you have a cold, if you have a sore throat for a couple of days or shortness of breath, you need to take that seriously. Um, even episodes of fever, diarrhea, and weight loss could be Um, a symptom of COVID and people might think they have a stomach flu or they might think that they have something else going on. So I think that any symptom that is not normal, especially if you're older 
any age, but especially for those patients who are over 50 and have other underlying diseases, you need to pay close attention and act on them sooner than later. Because if you are infected and you're not acting on it, then you can really infect a whole lot more of people in your family and wherever. And we want to try to prevent and avoid that. Thank you. What do you see as the greatest need right now? I think the greatest need is definitely the medical equipment. Uh, Unfortunately, there's going to be hard decisions made. This upcoming week and this um, second week of April, I think, are going to hit us the hardest, and it's going to be what New York has been experiencing. Um, And there's going to be a lot of issues in terms of patients coming in who may be older and may be sicker, and there may not be the availability of equipment and hard decisions are going to be made. So I think that that's equipment, ventilators, you know, and personnel. You know, personnel who aren't exhausted, who aren't exposed or sick themselves. These are all going to be concerns for taking care of these sick people. Who do you see as the most vulnerable population or most vulnerable in your community? Well, we we serve veterans specifically and only. um, And because of that, we do have a larger elderly population. Um, I'm not quite sure what the mean age is, but I would say just from the patients that I take take care of on my panel, you know, the mean age is probably about 60, 62. So most of those patients, if not all of them on my panel, definitely have some underlying disease. Any patient 50 and above who has any underlying diseases, hypertension, diabetes, a smoker, uh, COPD, you know, pulmonary disease, anything like that is definitely going to be at a higher risk. Asthma, anybody with a respiratory disease is at a higher risk disadvantage to this disease because it hits hard and it affects the lungs so strongly. Thank you. If you could give any advice or what advice would you give to other healthcare providers or others on the front lines right now? You know, I don't think that there's much that I could tell the frontline providers. Um, We know what we have to do. We know the precautions that we have to take. The information is clear. We're getting guidance all the time when things change. We are up-to-dated constantly. I don't think that there's any misconceptions whatsoever for frontline providers. What I feel is the most important issue here is that people follow the recommendations. People stay home. You know, weather's going to get nice. Do you want to go outside, sit on your porch, or go in the backyard? But don't be around people. Don't have family come over and visit you. You know, take technology and use it to your advantage so that you can Skype and see your grandkids and see your family members and make those connections. Um, And I think the other thing people need to take seriously, especially those who are older, is you need to think about what happens to the what if. And um, finding with the patients that I take care of that now because they're in situations where they're being isolated and they definitely feel that they have the disease or have been diagnosed, there's that possibility of demise, and the reality of that is very scary, and so the anxiety and mental health issues are coming out big time and in need for them to be helped. At this time. So I think that people need to just follow the recommendations, and everybody does their part, and we'll get through this faster. Yes, we definitely need to be taking those precautions seriously and being aware of the impact that we can have on others. That leads me to... My last question, what kind of impact do you see this crisis leaving on, on health care? I think that this has been a shock to many and most health care providers and frontline providers, um, EMT, police, anybody, because we never really took the time to think, could this have happened to us? And because now that it has, it has put us in a crisis um, mode. And I think, you know, you hear nurses, we all know that we have a duty to take care of patients. At the same time, some, of, some nurses feel that they have a duty to take care of them and their families. And I think there should be no prejudice against that. We all have specific, we all have specific situations in our lives. 
some are older, some have their own health risks and may not want to put themselves at the front line. You have others that may be quitting the profession because this is not what they thought they signed up for. And then you have others who are putting all of their their knowledge and their work into it and working on the front line. Um, I think that we're going to learn from this. And I think one of the bigger things that we're going to learn is that we're going to be better prepared if it happens again and when it happens again, because I believe this is going to happen again. And we're not going to wait another hundred years like we did for the flu. We have too much going on in our world, too much technology. And this is definitely something that will happen to us sooner than later. Thank you, Renee. I guess what what would you say you mentioned earlier to ensure that people are listening to government agencies and reputable agencies, uh, World Health or- Organization and the Center for Disease Control? What would you say to those that are not, maybe not taking this seriously or don't trust some of these public health orders and maybe they think that some of this is not as serious as the media is making it appear? What would you say to those individuals? I think it's hard to say anything to people who have their own perceived notions as to what's true and what's not. I wouldn't be surprised if there might be some underlying paranoia and mental health issues with people who really think that strongly when the evidence is showing you the amount of deaths deaths of persons that are accumulating and the amount of daily um, newly diagnosed COVID um, uh, patients. Unfortunately, sometimes there's just no, sometimes there's just no way of proving certain facts to certain people. So I I just, it's a shame. I think people should just try to do what they should by listening with the social distancing, not going out if not necessary. At the same time, I think that if you have people who are near you, who you think or know might be like that, maybe reach out to them and try to help them and, and support them and give them some of the information. They might just take it from somebody else and just listening to the news. Um, so if that's the case, you know, it doesn't hurt to reach out and talk to people if you can. Thank you. Any advice or maybe possible concerns, maybe once people feel like returning, maybe not feel like returning to their daily lives, but once um, stay-at-home orders are maybe um, uh, eased on and people attempt or uh, try to return to daily routines? I think that this is going to go on a lot longer than people think. I think the end of April is is good for a number or a timeline at this point, but I feel that this is going to be going on longer just from what we're seeing. There is a false pretense that this disease does not like heat, which is true, but just because you live in Florida or a hot state does not mean that you're not going to get it. The other thing is that I think people should practice what they're being told to practice now for quite a while. I don't think that's something you just drop and you decide it's okay to go to a show or go to you know, a concert. That's not going to happen. And I don't think those facilities are going to be readily available until they feel it's safe as well. And so I think people should continue to practice this for a while. Thank you very much, Renee. And thank you, Arathelli. Um, thank you for all you do to, as well. And thank you for uh, listening. And don't forget to wash your hands for 20 seconds, cough and sneeze into your elbow, and don't touch your face. And most importantly, remember to stay home and save lives.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.